Hey everyone, thanks for joining us on Chicago Tonight. I'm Paris Schutz. Brandis Friedman has the evening off. Here's what we're looking at tonight. The recent deadly derailments in Ohio beg the question, what are the chances of that happening here in Illinois? WTTW News investigates. I've always balanced budgets. I'm the only one on this stage who has released a budget plan. Our Spotlight Politics team on tonight's first mayoral runoff debate. The annual list of Chicago's most endangered buildings is out. Which historic buildings are in danger of demolition? And we introduce you to a local artist creating mosaics out of unexpected items. Now to our top story tonight. You might recall those horrific images from last month's train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. Illinois sits at an important shipping crossroads which begs the question... What are the chances a derailment of that magnitude with hazardous chemicals could happen closer to home? WTTW News investigative reporter Jared Rutecki dug into that question and joins us now with some answers. Jared, to that question, how likely is it that Illinois could see something on the magnitude of what happened in East Palestine? Yes, Chicago and Illinois are at the center of the transport of goods in the country, and rail is an important part of that. Uh, railroads are required to move hazardous goods through the country by law, and their safety record is generally relatively good. Following the disaster in East Palestine, I looked up the data uh, from the federal and state to determine uh, trains and hazmat incidents. Uh, that, that train in particular uh, from Norfolk Southern left from Illinois and traveled through the state before it derailed in Ohio, leaving an environmental disaster in its path. The most common incidents are small leaks or spills in the train yards. Less common but troubling are the derailments in Illinois. Some of the ones in this state have seen uh, close damage to, uh, to waterways and uh, protected animals. So uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a really important thing. And as I understand, some of the chemicals leaked in, in some of the damages, uh, coal, petroleum, that kind of thing. Uh, tell us where these train accidents in Illinois have taken place. And, and how big these accidents have been. Yeah, the communities that are most affected are around major rail centers. So Chicago and uh, East St. Louis see a number of incidents. In the, in the immediate community, uh, you'll see a lot of incidents in uh, Joliet, um, Riverdale, uh, Bedford Park. Uh, and uh, there are, uh, most of the derailments in the past couple of decades happen here in Cook County. Uh, second high, their third highest number of incidents in the country uh, involve the state of Illinois, and the derailments can really happen just about anywhere. Still nothing on the magnitude that happened in East Palestine, knock on wood. Uh, although this has gotten the attention of some communities in the northwest suburbs, they're concerned about this rail merger that could happen out there. So is there cause for concern here? Yeah, the merger between Canadian Pacific and Kansas City Southern uh, proposed uh, it create a train network between Canada and Mexico. Uh, if it's approved, uh, and the, it'll go through the area. A number of northwest suburbs have expressed concern about this. Uh, they have a lot of issues, uh, particularly with the, uh, the transparency with a lot of this release. And uh, there's a disagreement between the two sides on how much hazardous material is going to increase moving through the area. Many of the leaders felt their concerns were ignored, and uh, they and the companies are going to be watching federal regulators to see if and when the uh, merger is approved. All right, Jared. A lot of folks keeping a close eye on this. Thanks very much. Thank you. And you can read Jared's detailed report on our website where you can also search all recorded train derailments involving hazardous material by location, substance, and date. It's all at WTTW.com news. Now to some more of today's top stories. 
Hundreds of Chicago police officers gather in Oaklawn to pay respects to one of their own. 32-year-old Andres Mauricio Vasquez Lasso was shot and killed in the line of duty after responding to a domestic violence call last week. His funeral is tomorrow at St. Rita of Kasha Shrine Chapel at 10 a.m. We'll have more on the officer's life and legacy tomorrow. A Chicago police officer who lied about his ties to the Proud Boys is back on the city payroll. Officer Robert Baker returned to full-time duty today, according to the city's online database. He was serving a 120-day suspension. Baker's return comes two weeks after members of city council's public safety committee demanded police officials do more to weed out extremists from its ranks. CPD says Baker is undergoing a reinstatement process but did not answer any questions about what part of the city he'd be assigned to patrol. And there's more on this story on our website. The Big Ten men's basketball tournament tipped off today at the United Center. Tomorrow, seventh-seeded Illinois plays Penn State. And then Friday, number two-seed Northwestern takes on the winner of that Illinois game. NCAA tournament bids are announced on Sunday. Meanwhile, United Center concession workers could strike at any time after failing to come to a contract agreement with management. And time for your daily mayoral endorsement update. Today, both Brandon Johnson and Paul Vallis can count a few more folks in their respective quarters. Johnson received the endorsement of politically influential labor union SEIU Local 1, touting his credentials as a labor leader and organizer. NWTDW News learns today that the Chicago Teachers Union House of Delegates authorized up to $2 million in union dues to support Brandon Johnson against Vallis and in some aldermanic runoff races. Meanwhile, Vallis received the endorsement of former mayoral candidate Willie Wilson, who finished with around 9% of the vote. Wilson spoke out about his concerns with Johnson's ties to the Chicago Teachers Union, pointing to low CPS student test scores. Faculty and staff at Chicago State University vote on whether to strike. The CSU University Professionals of Illinois says members are taking a strike authorization vote today through Friday. The union says it has 20 bargaining sessions under its belt with university administration since last June, and the main unresolved issues are over workload and compensation. A university spokesperson did not respond to a request for comment. And up next, the race for mayor. NASCAR drives a taste out of Grant Park and much more with our Spotlight Politics team. That's right after this. Chicago Tonight is made possible in part by Alexandra and John Nichols. The Jim and Kay Maybe family. The Polk Brothers Foundation. And the support of these donors. Candidates for mayor square off in the first runoff forum so far as older people put on the brakes on the taste of Chicago's relocation because of this summer's NASCAR Chicago event. That and much more in tonight's Spotlight Politics. And tonight we are joined by Heather Sharon and special guest Angela Rosas O'Toole, senior editor of government and politics at WBEZ Chicago. Welcome to both of you. Uh, so let's start with that mayoral runoff forum tonight at NBC5 where Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson addressed each other as extreme Take a look. I've really focused on running an issue-oriented campaign, and I think that's why I've had success so far. That's how I will appeal to, the, to all of Chicago. The reason why people are excited about our campaign is because we're telling people the truth. And the fact of the matter is, the reason why folks are being forced out of the city of Chicago is because, one, it's unsafe, and they're burdened by the property tax burden that was created in the 1990s by Paul Vallis. And our hat tip to our colleague Marianne Ahern for moderating this debate tonight. So, Heather Sharon, a lot of fire directed from Brandon Johnson to Paul Vallis seemed like a little muted the other way. 
Are they both kind of acting like Vallis is the presumed frontrunner right now? Well, it certainly seemed like Johnson was more aggressive out of the gate. However, Vallis got his licks in, too, calling Johnson's remarks nonsense several times. He also laid the school closures during the COVID-19 pandemic, which were supported by the Chicago Teachers Union in many cases at Brandon Johnson's feet, and said that's the reason why violence has surged in Chicago and has claimed the lives of so many young people in Chicago. So I don't know if you can count that as muted, but that is a particularly right, so pointed criticism. Certainly both of them got their, their jabs in tonight. So, Angela, uh, we, we have endorsements that are coming fast and furious this week. As we just mentioned, Paul Vallis gets an out from Willie Wilson, Rod Sawyer, Jesse White, and Ken Griffin, uh, the Florida gentleman, Ken Griffin. Uh, Brandon Johnson uh, gets SEIU, Tony Preckwinkle, Danny Davis, the congressman. What does this mean in terms of votes, boots on the ground, money? What a great question. Yeah, the endorsements just keep rolling in uh, for both sides. And I think that's a major question. I think both candidates are looking at attracting the undecideds, if you will. Um, you could argue that the unions that are lining up behind progressive Johnson are maybe un not unexpected. You could say the same thing about conservatives who may be lining up behind Paul Vallis, who is shown to have more conservative stride and has already been endorsed by FOP. The question is, does anybody care? Uh, are people going to vote because of what one or another person says or because what the, what the candidates themselves are pitching is what they want to hear? And I think we're going to have to see. But it does seem like this race is falling along certain fault lines. Maybe not so much race itself, Heather, but certainly class when you look at labor organizations, working class folks behind Brandon Johnson and the money going to Paul Vallis. Lots of the one percenters of Chicago and a former one percenter of Chicago, Ken Griffin, not in money, but in verbal support. Right. No, this is a, a classic case of, of management versus labor. And I think both Johnson and Vallis are happy to have that discussion be sort of the lines that this fall along. But there you know, was only a very few things that they agreed on tonight's debate. They both don't like the automatic property tax hike that Lori Lightfoot pushed through. They don't like the speed cameras. And they don't like the Millennium Park curfew for teens. Beyond that, they are diametrically opposed on how the city should be run in the next four years. Do we know how any of them feel about this whole NASCAR uh, event happening this summer, Heather, and, and the fact that it's going to happen the same week that Taste of Chicago is supposed to happen, so the Taste is moving to Navy Pier, we think. Maybe. What is the exact latest on that? Yeah, we don't know. So every year the city has to approve a special events ordinance, and usually it is the most routine of routine ordinances, but this year it's stalled because Alderman Brendan Riley and Brian Hopkins, who represent downtown, were furious to learn that the Taste of Chicago would mean to move to the Polk Brothers Park in front of Navy Pier, because they can't hold it in Grant Park, because there will be all of four days this summer of the 87-day summer that Grant Park will be fully open to Chicagoans because of the NASCAR rates, because of the Sueños Festival, and because of Lollapalooza. All right, Angela Rosa, so that's an amazing stat there. Only <laughs> four lovely. days at this public park, Chicago's front yard, with softball diamonds, people walking their dogs, people just having a relaxing day out in the city. Only four days the general public can use the entire park because of these events. Uh, how should Chicagoans feel about that? I, you're hearing a lot of pushback on this, for sure. Uh, what is Chicago for? What are these institutions for? What's the parks for? 
Um, you could argue that, well, it makes a lot of money for the city. And when you have these huge festivals, tourism is a huge draw. It has been for many years. Is this out of line with that? But I think a lot of residents, especially those, uh, Block Club did a nice story about the poor softball leagues that can't play there anymore. And it's a big question. Who are the parks for and what are they for? And, you know, when you start running out of time and out of room to get to the park, is it for Chicagoans? Is it for tourists? Who's going to pay the money? Who's it really for? I should mention that uh, when I played frosh soft baseball at St. Ignatius, we used the right. baseball, the yeah. softball diamonds at Grand Park. So now no one can do that, if, right. except for those four days, Heather. So you mentioned the alderman delaying this in ordinance. How do you think this gets resolved? Because, again, a new mayor is going to come in, and it's going to be their problem. Well, we heard Alderman Riley say, look, this should be left to the next mayor. He has endorsed Paul Vallis. However, the Taste of Chicago is not an event that gets put on overnight, and they need to approve this now for it to take place this summer. Now, there's been some suggestion maybe it should move to the fall. I don't know about that. But time is ticking, and this is going to be another indication that Mayor Lori Lightfoot is going to face a very, very tough lame duck period getting anything through the city council. Well, they were supposed to have a hearing on the ComEd franchise agreement. That canceled. got canceled. Yes. So that is not going to happen, it seems like, until uh, someone else is sworn in. Let's talk about this proud boy, uh, this officer, uh, Robert Baker, who had ties to the proud boys and then and then was found to have not told the truth about it. Angela, how is it, how how is it that he is able to have his job back and what do we know about uh, what he's doing with CPD? Yeah, I mean, I think CPD is facing an issue right here. He is among a number of officers who have been tied to um, gr extremism groups. There's another one uh, who keeps coming up before, I think, for a third time. There's another officer who was a part of the March 20th, I mean, the uh, 2020 uh, protests. He was wearing one of these one percenter. Um, three percenters. Sorry. Yes. Three, three percenter masks. Well. Let's, let's not get not our the one percenter. Yeah. Percenter, percentages yeah. confused yeah. here. Yeah. I mean, but in, in seriously, he, he's been investigated multiple times by police, but hasn't faced any discipline. This keeps coming back to haunt the police department because a lot of people think this, you know, these extremist groups uh, have some integrity issues, have some abuse issues, potentially there's some ties to January 6th insurrection. Are these the people we want to be leading the police department, being a part of the police department? But there are lots of little intricacies and rules that govern how you can, you know, is it truly an extremism group? So these cases keep coming back before the police department. We've seen a lot of pressure from, again, city council, from other brass saying, we really need to do something about this. We need to root out individuals. There's more than a dozen police officers at NPR last year found were tied to Oath Keepers who either retired, some of them, but some of them still on the force. This will keep coming back to haunt CPD as they investigate and try to figure out what they need to do. So, certainly dangerous associations if you have law enforcement associating with uh, these groups and what they're for. Heather, it seemed like CPD wasn't really divulging much. Right. When you asked them, so what is he going to do? Is he going to be patrolling? What neighborhood is he going to be patrolling? Right. I think there are a lot of questions about, you know, sort of what he will be tasked to do as a fully reinstated Chicago police officer. Because the fundamental question is, and I, I spoke with Brian Johnson at Equality Illinois, the LGBTQ um, civil rights organization, and he said that, you know, it, it will ne gay people in Chicago will not feel safe when they have officers like this on the force because they cannot trust them to protect their civil rights. So this is a fundamental integrity issue for the Chicago Police Department. And there have been so many cases over the years where the Chicago Police Department has fallen short in policing its own. And this is perhaps the most recent, but most high profile example of those intricacies getting in the way of holding officers and accountable. As we've said many times, the Inspector General of Chicago found a different 
conclusion Correct. here. They said the CPD could indeed relieve him of his duty. CPD disagreed with that. Uh, Heather Sharon, Angela Rosas O'Toole, thank you for joining us. Maybe we can have a picnic uh, out in Grant Park on one of the four days that we'd be able to use the entire park. See you on June 1st. See you yeah. on June 1st. All right, thanks for being here. And up next, what buildings are on this year's endangered list? Where have we been? Where are we at? Where are we going? Essentially to be able to help anyone and everyone in the community, whether that's through academic support, social emotional learning, or just providing a safe space for you to be able to be there. This is the fabric of the neighborhood. You need to take care of the neighborhood. It's an ecosystem. It's an annual report aimed at highlighting historic Chicago buildings that are most in danger of demolition. The Chicago 7 Most Endangered List was created to sound the alarm and rally support for such buildings. It's now in its 20th year, and the latest list is out just today, hot off the presses. And joining us now with more is Ward Miller, Executive Director of Preservation Chicago. Ward, always great to see you. You've put out this list every year for the last 20 years, the most endangered buildings in Chicago. Remind our viewers why you put this list out. Well, we put this list out to sort of spotlight and highlight these buildings, because oftentimes people are not aware of these structures being endangered in their everyday lives. So this is an opportunity to really spotlight, hone in, tell that history, and tell the, tell the issue in front of us uh, and why these might be endangered. And we won't, we won't divulge the entire list. We'll have people go read for that. But let's talk about some of the buildings on your list this year. First, the Century and Consumers Building in the Loop. And this building has been slated uh, by the federal government for demolition. Tell us about this building. Yeah, it's a little... These two buildings from 1915 and 1916, they're part of the Chicago School of Architecture. They're very important historic skyscrapers. They are t considered too close to the federal center for the GSA. This is the General Services Administration and the judges that, uh, that office in that building. And it's really unfortunate because uh, these buildings are spectacular and they've been owned by the GSA for more than 17 years and they've just been allowed to fall into disrepair. And these are really landmark quality buildings in the city of Chicago and the Landmarks Commission and their staff have determined that they do fit qualifications for landmark designation. And I know there is a debate here because the federal government has allocated money to tear these buildings down. And like you said, they're afraid it's too close to the federal building, like, say, a sniper hung out on one of the floors there. So what would you do with those buildings to keep them around? Well, first of all, there are a lot of buildings that are just as close. So we're wondering why these are being picked on or selected. And is this setting a national precedent for any building that may be too close to another GSA or federal building. But we have a plan to make this an archive center building because archives are light sensitive. So we could actually block windows from the interior of these buildings that would allow the buildings to look like they do now, although better because they would be cleaned up and restored. Uh, and then uh, these archives could individually work on each one of these floors, have the highest security locked off elevator floors, access by appointment only. All right, we'll see if anyone in the government is listening to you. Uh, also on your list, not one building, but all the terracotta buildings throughout Chicago. Explain yes. why they are endangered. So, um, you know, especially in areas of great investment, in areas of complete disinvestment, we've seen these small terracotta buildings under siege and demolished. And the, ch Chicago was a terracotta center. Uh, we had Northwestern Terracotta, American Terracotta Company, Chicago Terracotta, and, and Midland Terracotta Company. And people forget how special these buildings are, but terracotta is like a molded brick that could be shaped 
uh, could be colored, uh, could be ornamented and replicated. And it's really an amazing material that's so Chicago in so in so many aspects. And it's a it's a material and a building type that's found in na- neighborhoods throughout the city. So we find this to be an important aspect to retain. I, I recognize some of those one in Edgewater there that you showed. I think on Bryn Mawr. All right. Uh, yes. Also on this list. The warehouse in the West Loop. Now, this holds important cultural significance. Explain that. Absolutely. We don't see a lot of these kinds of buildings, but uh, this is uh, the home of... uh of, of uh, house music, yes, thank you, and uh, it gained its name from the warehouse, so, mm-hmm. so it, it gained that name. And uh, this is where uh, Frankie Knuckles uh, started his career uh, spinning records, and uh, this is a very popular uh, place in the 1970s and 1980s where house music was essentially born, if you will. So we find this to be an important building that's uh, a modest building. You can see it's just only a couple stories tall. It's in the West Loop, and it's for sale right now. And it's also next to a larger site, which has a small restaurant in it. Certainly house music so influential in the world. Absolutely. Coming from the name of that actual building, the warehouse in the West Loop, we'll see uh, if that can get preserved. So tell us, uh, again, you've put this list out for 20 years. Are there any notable buildings that you've saved? Because oh, you, my gosh. Yes. What are your favorite ones that you saved? You know, uh, Cook County Hospital, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the old main post office, uh, numerous uh, religious buildings, churches. Um, I have to tell you, uh, a few years ago, we were the force that got the Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley House landmark. And it was in West Woodlawn, a two-flat with vacant lots to its north and abandoned. And this was a site that we wanted recognized for a long time. So that's important, along with this group of 15 houses on the near north side, in and around North Michigan Avenue, that were survivors that hadn't been taken down by larger developments. All right. So when folks drive around Chicago and they notice these great old buildings that have been a part of their lives, they can thank you for, for the work uh, saving all this. Ward Miller, thanks very much for sharing this with us. Thank you, Paris. Always, always amazed to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. And you can find Preservation Chicago's full list of most endangered buildings on our website, wttw.com news. Up next, making art out of unexpected objects. But first, we take a look at the weather. Unexpected household items are the focus of a local artist creating portraits for her inner child. Arts correspondent Angel Ido introduces us to Keila Strong and her barrette mosaics. Typically, mosaics are made of colorful broken pieces of tile, stone, or glass, but not usually barrettes. I started with like wooden beads, um, and then I'm like, mm, I need more color. So then I was thinking hair, I was thinking barrettes, and that gave me all the color I needed, and then it was like the rest is history. It just kept growing and growing. It was her piece titled Picture Day that put Keila Strong's work on the map. The barrettes specifically speaks to childhood joys. Um, I hear them. Edge control, rollers, every, like, every accessory used, it holds some type of um, memory for me. And it's just comforting. It's just comforting. I don't think I appreciated it as much before, Uh, Me turning it into art has given me a greater appreciation just because I didn't realize, like, how important barrettes were to my childhood. Let me see. All these uh, accessories 
make this woman. So it, it shows the evolution of the black girl um, from childhood to adolescence into womanhood. From cocoa butter to bamboo earrings and every bobby pin in between, for Strong, these pieces not only reflect her growth as a woman, but the sacrifices it took to get her there. I left my job June of 22 um, and decided to pursue art full time. So it's the first time that I've been able to give everything to the arts. I was feeling like I needed to give it my all in order to do well. Um, I was already like still doing local shows, selling work, but it just wasn't enough. And I was never gonna be okay with giving whatever is left over after everything else. So I'm like, okay, I have to give this thing my all at least one at one point in my life. From a sketch to a completed mosaic, each piece takes around two weeks to complete. Strong says her future focus remains rooted in her passion, while also hopefully inspiring her son's generation. I think that art has the potential to um, spark the minds of the, the next generation of world changers. It's important that we not only like show them, you know, or you know, mentor, kind of guide them, leave a blueprint for them, but also that we encourage people along the way. And I think it's important that people feel empowered and a find a light within themselves, whether it's art or not, but if it can be sparked with an idea, uh, um, I think that's the type of things that change the world. For Chicago Tonight, I'm Angel Ito. Keila Strong says she's still trying to figure out how she can ship her mosaics with all the barrettes remaining intact. In the meantime, visit our website for more information about her art. And that is our show for this Wednesday night. Don't forget to stay connected with us by signing up for our daily briefing. And you can get Chicago Tonight streamed on Facebook, YouTube, and our website, wttw.com news. You can also get the show via podcast in the PBS video app. And please join us tomorrow night live at 10. The funeral for Chicago police officer Andres Mauricio Vasquez Lasso, who was shot and killed last week. And Englewood residents vote to reopen the Racine Green Line, Green Line stop. So what's next? We have a live report. Now for all of us here at Chicago Tonight, I'm Paris Schatz. Thank you so much for watching. Stay healthy and safe and have a great night. Closed captioning is made possible by Robert A. Clifford and Clifford Law Offices, a Chicago personal injury and wrongful death firm that's proud to serve its community through pro bono legal services.